Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. This establishment of the Church of England is not something I call for because I want Christianity tipexed out. I just think that it's not right to have a state religion. It's not the job of the state. I also think it kind of pollutes the church. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Daily Telegraph, and welcome to your weekly edition of Chopper's Politics. Well, I'm sitting here in the Red Lion pub at my usual table amongst all the tinsel and decorations for Christmas, reading the Telegraph. And it's not happy reading. Britain is descending into chaos and the Tories are powerless to stop it, says my colleague Alistair Heath in Thursday's paper. And that's quite a good jumping off point for this week's podcast. Coming up, I've got Simon Clark, the former levelling up secretary, here to talk to us about how the Tories can get back on the front foot. Also, William Ragg, Tory MP for Hazelgrove and chairman of a major House of Commons committee, who said this week he's quitting politics at 34. Why? And later on, Tim Farron, the former Lib Dem leader, on why faith and politics can and maybe should mix. But first up, Simon Clark was levelling up secretary in Liz Truss's government and served in many roles under Boris Johnson before he resigned as Prime Minister. Now back on the back benches, Simon Clark is free to speak his mind and he's got some real wake-up calls for the Tories, not least on the need to bring back wind farms onshore and also not to get rid of these centrally set housing targets which have so upset some members in the south of England. Simon Clark, welcome to Chopper Politics, a very festive Red Lion pub. Yes. Hope you're enjoying the decorations yes, I, around I, I, us. I feel positive as I should be in my Santa outfit. <laughs> Quite right. Let's look at you briefly then. You were uh, levelling up secretary in Liz Truss's government for those 44 days when she was prime minister. Before that, of course, you had roles in the Treasury. You've been around for a bit now. You know that the Tory party policy is not to have onshore wind farms. Why do you want to change that? Well, I want to change it because I think that our, our current policy is, is, is unsustainable. We have a, a de facto blanket ban on uh, new onshore wind. And that is, uh, I think, very hard to sustain economically. Uh, onshore wind is the cheapest form of energy generation today, without exception, renewable or non-renewable. Uh, I think it's very hard to justify that we have a ban at a time when obviously energy bills are so much in the news and on people's minds. Mm. But then, clearly, there's a question of energy security that's linked to that. And there is a question of our environmental commitments, which are legally binding. And this is one of the simpler ways that is open to us to meet those uh, demands. And the the wider point here is that the amendment that I've tabled to the levelling up bill is explicitly about empowering communities. So 
I am very clear that if a local community does not want onshore wind, it should not have it, and it most certainly should not have it imposed. Defined by on what? It. So how, defined, ten, ten defined, miles defi- from the from the site. Uh, of it, well, d- defined by that, I would, under the terms of this amendment, remove the right of developers to appeal if a council says no to a given application. There would be no automatic right of appeal, and that would remedy the situation which colleagues were rightly concerned about in the run-up to the 2015 election, whereby developers were routinely winning these, these appeals and forcing yeah. decisions on communities. How about money off, off bills for communities affected by these, uh, these well, I would uh, certainly, I would certainly favour that. And, and, and what's really interesting How much? Is, well, I think that, in a way, is not for the government to determine, if you like. I think what we ought to do is step out of the business of trying to regulate this and allow companies like Octopus, who said that they would... Offer Four, this kind of production. Pounds or something. Yeah, yeah well, uh, four hundred pounds would be a very topical sum. Yes. But the the reality is, it is absolutely, I think, a matter for negotiation between communities and companies. And all I am saying is that if somewhere does want onshore wind, the government should be saying they can't. You're going back to localism here, aren't you? Yes. This idea which David Cameron championed, which is the idea of being Conservative Party government backing out of running people's lives and let communities decide what to do. And I think the, the point here is, which I've been making to colleagues over recent days, either we can address the onshore question now with localism at its heart and enshrined in the legislation, or a future Labour government, and there will one day be a Labour government, we hope not for a long time, but uh, we have to be realistic, the wheel will turn. Well, we're all Democrats, Simon. We're all Democrats You here. can't have a thousand years of Tory rule, uh, uh, even if you might want that. Absolutely, and uh, uh, you know that is a, a, a pressing reality, and onshore wind will be brought back by a Labour government. Well, there's a dash for Green. I mean, they're going to bring Absol- a, a dash absolutely. And by the, its nature. It sounds like, it sounds like they're going to really go for the, it well, on onshore they, wind. They, they would, and they would do it without enshrining this community consent lock. So I think we either address this issue now, or we will have to deal with it in due course in a less favourable way for communities. What about bird strike? Um, literally cutting birds up these, these I mean, I, 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 windmills. I think, I, I think all of They're this noisy. is slightly overblown. I mean, Would you live near one? Well, the, the reality is, if I or a another didn't want to have... I mean, I personally have no objection to turbines, but the point is, if a community doesn't want it, they wouldn't have it. But lots of places do want it, and uh, there is no question that companies do know communities where there is a suppressed appetite for this, and it can't be realised, and that is absolutely crazy. So, Simon Clark, you say they want you get the government to butt out of being involved in, in decision-making, but you want them to be involved in setting central housing targets. How do you square that? Well, I want there to be some constructive pressure to build the homes that this country needs. And I am all in favour of addressing some of the, the undoubtedly legitimate concerns mm. that communities experience around rates of house building in part of the country. And I think there's a lot more we can do around both infrastructure and making sure that existing communities get the NHS infrastructure, the schools, the roads, which make new development palatable, and also, frankly, receive some of the uplift. The, the, I, I see no problem with house building leading to potentially even reductions in council tax in areas that accommodate it. Is that being, looked, I, up? Is that being looked up by the government? Well, it's something which uh, certainly when Liz was in office, we, we were Liz talking Trust. about direct... Uh, direct incentives, if you like, for communities to welcome new homes. I think there's, there's a lot we can do around that. There's a lot we can do around design codes and actually making sure that new homes are built well mm. rather than just the classic you know, boxes being dumped in a field. And you know, that is all important. But if we abolish all targets, which is what's being discussed by some of my colleagues, we will, I'm afraid, end up with a NIMBY's charter. That is the, the blunt reality of, of what that would mean. And... Independent assessment suggests that 
at a time when at the moment we build about a quarter of a million new homes a year, which is the highest levels for 30 years, but still short of what we need, we would see a reduction of about 100,000 in that were we to abolish all the targets. So it would be a massive blow to the house building industry. And critically, we do, as Conservatives, surely believe in a property-owning democracy. This goes to the heart of why we want to, uh, to, to build these homes. It's giving people a stake in society. Well, you convert them into Tory voters. The well, you do. Shows. And I think that there is, a, there is a, a very short-sighted element to the we-must-stop-building debate. As I say, I get the pressures, and I'm happy to try and address those in targeted ways. Mm. But to reach the conclusion that the only way to solve this problem is to say all targets must go is the equivalent of saying uh, that you you know you don't like Turkey and therefore you must close all shops. It's a, it's a very it's a very it's very ratios. very blunt tool. Is the answer ratio? So what the complaint appears to be that you have uh, large numbers of homes imposed on communities where, where there's quite a small hamlet or village or town, and it's not really ready for that kind of volume. If you had a ratio linking the target to numbers of homes already there, that could mean it would be incremental rather than imposing large. You communities. certainly could look at issues like this, and, and and this goes to the point, Chris, that there are ways of finessing this argument without, as I say, using a sort of sledgehammer approach, which does, I think, work against both the economic and the social imperatives we want to see tackled because it is totally crazy that young people really in most parts of the country without parental help uh, cannot buy a home of their own I mean that that is not sustainable and we we can only address this by fundamentally addressing issues of supply and demand Isn't the problem though Simon Clark that your party is a party of limbies that they don't want development near them or perhaps they're bananas (laughs) (laughs) as you know what bananas stands for don't you? Building absolutely anything Near anyone, anywhere. And, 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 th- and this is a, uh, a characterisation we have to resist. Fundamentally, I think we need to be the party that's on the side of people who want to build a better life for themselves. And Aspiration to quote. As- I, I mean, I, I, I am a Thatcherite to my core, and I am not in the business of protecting the cosy vested interests of people who already have a very fortunate lot in life. I'm all in favour, clearly, of trying to make sure that we do protect the countryside and, and protect the interests of existing communities but that cannot be at the expense of the next generation and it will be an electoral suicide note for the conservative party if we continue what we have already i'm afraid started to see happen in london and the the wider southeast now which is this ripple effect of people who are not voting conservative in part at least because they can't see any way to acquire capital in their lives that is totally unsustainable for us it is a dream for labor high prices and high rents are turning a generation of young people away from the party which ought to be meeting their needs if you're building record numbers 250,000 homes a year why is the price of a home not coming down well the objective assessment is we need 300,000 a year to keep it's too light pace so it's still too light and really to get ahead of the problem you need to be building in excess of 300,000 a year uh, you know, the, the simple reality is that you know, I represent an area of suburban Teesside, and the average house price in my neck of the woods is mm. sort of £180,000, £200,000 for a, a you know, three-bedroom, four-bedroom family home. If you're a nurse or a teacher, you, know, you can absolutely see your way on a salary of 40000 a year to owning a really nice family home, and, and that is important. It doesn't, it's not the sole determinant of whether someone votes Conservative, but goodness me, if you can't see your way to that, 
Don't be surprised is it a when southern people don't Tory? vote for us. Is it a southern Tory issue? Yes, it is. It's not That's really a, a northern issue. It's not, it's not a northern issue at all. And I get, right, that the, the, the skewed economics of this country, which we are also trying to address through levelling up, so this is all of a piece, mean that there are population flows which apply particular pressure to the successful parts uh, of the country. And actually, this is one of the, the best arguments in favour of the levelling up agenda to southern sense voters of, sense of place it, uh, it, it, it in, would relieve pressure on yeah. the south if we had a more dynamic and successful north and midlands and that's one of the the many reasons why we should be trying to pursue yeah. this agenda and you see a moral need do you i mean a lot of voters have had uh, the advantage of quite cheaper property prices but then their children their grandchildren yes. can't go on the ladder at all. Well, well this is the point and i would certainly say this to people who are listening to this and who have you know obviously benefited from the extraordinary windfall in the last couple of generations around property prices that clearly even if it's worked out okay for them and you know that I, I don't begrudge them that but even if it has their children and most particularly their grandchildren are going to be the ones who are scuppered by this because the number of you know under 30 is still living at home is at a record high and, mm. and that's not because of some desire for the most part of these young people to to live with their parents it's because they've literally got no option mm. You mentioned the levelling up agenda, and of course you were at the heart of uh, Liz Truss's operation. You were one, one of the four quad ministers just making big choices. Do you miss being in the heart of government? Yes. Uh, I mean, there's no point shilly-shallying around. It's, it, it, it is an enormous uh, privilege to serve in government, and both Boris and Liz gave me the chance to serve in their cabinets, and I'm very grateful for that. I mean, clearly there are upsides to being out of government, not least that you can say sometimes what you actually think <laughs> rather than what, uh, uh, what you uh, are, are It's your are first time defending. out of government for some years, isn't it? Well, it is, and the, 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 the reality is that uh, that's an adjustment personally and politically, but it's, it, it's not... I, I don't want to sort of make myself out to be sort of stricken with grief. I, there are lots of things I want to pursue, but uh, obviously we're in politics because we actually want to make a difference. We have a Conservative majority, and I'm very keen that we should use that majority and I would love to be part of that but it's it's a question obviously of the right time the right opportunity and uh, I do sincerely wish Rishi and the new government success Hmm. because it is in our collective interest that we should make a meaningful uh, degree of progress with the enormous challenges we face as quickly as possible because obviously the election is now probably under two years away and notwithstanding the fact we've had some really awful external events to deal with there is a clear need now for delivery and that's happening slowly and slowly i mean it's baby steps someone says to me i mean alistair heath talks about in the telegraph on thursday that britain is descending into chaos and the tories your party are powerless to stop it do well, you agree with uh, alistair heath I, I i think what alistair is saying will, will reflect the frustration that many of us feel that our public services in particular appear to be in such a challenging place and that is you know, that is partly a challenge for us about institutional reform. And I think there is a particular need, uh, which I know Steve Barclay recognises, to address the NHS. And, you know, we're spending roughly the GDP of Greece on this institution. And yet, outcomes are very mixed. There's a feeling that Britain isn't working. Correct. To, to misquote the famous um, Labour isn't Quite. working. And, 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 this, is, and this, is a, this is a multi-dimensional problem. And some of it sits in the government's gift. Some of it is clearly in the gift of the unions, who are absolutely at the moment running a mark and there is a real need are you I to think. blame you've been in power for 12 years or do you blame liz trust personally no 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 i i said you don't blame liz i i, I think that, the, that mini budget i, I, I think the, the reality is that we've had sort of whole flock of black swans which are you know is, unexpected it, events uh, unexpected events which have you know covid ukraine covid ukraine obviously the the wider challenges frankly of of the last 10 years after the financial crisis and mm. all of the 
undoubted pressures that have come at us have been hard to manage. But we need, as a government, I think, to set out an authentic Conservative vision for what comes next. I think the public actually do recognise broadly that we've been dealt an immensely challenging hand. And they certainly have no truck with Starmer and Labour. There is minimal pull factor to the opposition. But we need to make sure there is a clear conservative vision for what comes next and critically an optimistic conservative vision i think that that is at the heart of what liz was trying to essay out and it's what we need to return to and just briefly on Liz trust how is she liz is on i think very stoic form i mean no one would deny that it, you know the experience of uh, of what happened is is pretty awful on a human level but she uh she is stoic and she's determined to keep fighting for the the values that matter be that obviously a more dynamic and open economy strength abroad not least in our dealings with the european what union what role will she have will she go to america let's talk of her going to america well i think i think liz will want to champion the best of global practice in terms of making sure that britain is a as i say a dynamic and successful economy and there are mm. lessons from america there are lessons from uh, the emerging economies of the far east as well as elsewhere on this and i think she will want to carve out a space whereby the failure of parts of her agenda doesn't cloud the underlying importance of what it is that she was saying which is that britain is not competitive enough we are not frankly tackling some of the underlying challenges which if we don't address them and house building is one of many that this country faces it will be to our collective detriment and it will see a real terms fall in living she'll carry on as an mp as far as you know after the next election no she's determined to how will this you remember her do you think i think uh there is an element I think, well, I, I mean, clearly that will be one of the takeaways. But I think, hopefully, more importantly, they will recognise her as someone whose diagnosis of the fundamental problems with our economy and society was broadly on the money. And just as the Heath government in the early seventies recognised but failed to succeed in 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 their battle against the unions, mm. the problems of industrial relations, which Margaret Thatcher would later go on to address successfully. I think there will be an element of having been something of a a prophet in her own land. And just finally, will Boris be back? Well, look, Boris is an immensely talented and... You're uh, a big supporter. I'm a huge... I I mean, mean, look, I mean... When he came back last month. For me, uh, Boris is the the most significant politician of, of this generation. And there were reasons why he won that thumping mandate in 19. A hugely personal mandate. And I think, you know, look, with Boris Johnson... In life, you can never say never. But for now, our focus needs to be on making sure that this government succeeds. Yes. And I know Boris himself, were he here, would be the first to say that. We have a job to do in 24, and that is winning as the United Party under Rishi Sunak. On that note, Simon Clark, thank you for joining us in a festive Red Lion pub today on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Simon Clark there. And we'll put a link to Alistair Heath's column in the show notes for this episode. Now, so far in this Parliament, 12 Tory MPs have said they are standing down and won't fight the next general election. That's not as many, anywhere near as many, as quit ahead of the 1992 election. That was more like 40 or 50. But some critics are worried that people with a long road ahead of them in politics are leaving. One of those is William Ragg, who entered politics aged just 27 in 2015 and is now quitting aged 34. Why? William Ragg, Tory MP for Hazelgrove, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. It's great to be on. How old are you, Will? Oh, goodness me. I think I'm 34. You're 34. Why are you calling time on your political career in your early 30s? 
Well, it's a bit perverse, isn't it, I admit. I think my misspent youth was getting into Parliament at the age of 27. And I think the most shocking uh, aspect of my announcement was that people realised what my age is, uh, (laughs) given that I've tried over the years in an affected way to convince people that I'm older, (laughs) if not maturer, uh, than might be assumed. Your callow years. You wanted to be a politician for a long time. Yeah, I all think, your life, would you say? All my, of course. I mean, people tend to be quite bashful and say, "Oh no, 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 I never wanted to." No, it's just something that occurred by accident. Becoming a member of Parliament doesn't occur by accident. You have to have a, uh, I think, a special type of people, if I can put it generously. Yes, well, let's go um, on to those people in a minute. Hmm. But yourself, I mean, you were when you were 10, 11, 12, were you yeah, thinking I, I can be an MP? I was. I was always interested in politics and current affairs. I thought it was important to do something a little different before which is where I dipped my toe in the water of teaching for a time. But, yeah, I always had the ambition. I didn't quite know how I was going to realise that ambition, but it was something that I wanted to do. So why are you leaving then? Why are you going now? I, for me, it's a decision that I've come to after a good number of months of um, thinking. And it was, it, if I can put it this way, as tritely as possible, it seems to me to be the right thing for me. Now, that might sound extremely selfish, but I've learned that occasionally putting yourself first is not always selfishness. And, it's uh, self-preservation. Indeed, indeed. And a lot has happened in the time that I've been a Member of Parliament. Mm. You know, if I say rather grandly, we're now my fifth Prime Minister. <laughs> OK, it's as if that, you know, 20 or 30 years of political goings-on has been squashed and truncated into a very small... Space. You were elected in May 2015, weren't yeah, you? Absolutely. And a lot has happened then. If you think about the referendum, a uh, leadership contest, yes. uh, early general election, uh, Brexit. Brexit, all that, that, that minor going on. And, um, Are you worn out by it? Um, no, I'm not worn out. I mean, I, you know, it, of course, it, you, you do become worn out at times, but you can restore mm. yourself to it. But, I, you know, I, I, it really is a positive step that I've made for myself. And the reason I've done so this far out, I suppose, 18 months, best part of two years, presumably, uh, until the next general election, is so that I can uh, acclimatise to it. Because, you know, as an mm. institutionalised and de-skilled member of parliament <laughs> uh, seeking readmittance to the human race, uh, it might take a little bit of time to adjust. Because all the building blocks were there for you, Will Rag. You were chairman of, of a, the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. You're on the board of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tory MPs. A knighthood is probably 10 years away if you stayed in post. <laughs> well, that's very kind to imagine, you, I suppose. That's you constructed not- quite a good the, the framework of, of, of a successful backbencher, uh, if that's what you wanted to be, yeah. a parliamentarian, we're, yeah. we're, we're all in place. Well, leave them wanting more, Chris. <laughs> leave them wanting. I mean, is your decision to go linked to what happened last summer? You made that extraordinary statement, didn't you, when you were chairman of that mm. uh, PACAC committee yeah. about bullying by whips? Well, it was a, quite a, a, a wide-ranging statement, which I made then, because I saw uh, injustices happening to a number of colleagues and influence being unfairly applied to them. And uh, there was all kinds of things going on with the, uh, particularly the shadow whipping operation, if we we cast our minds back to that. And I didn't like to see people put in a very invidious position. And so I I felt the only way that something might be done about it and for that kind of behaviour to desist, which it did, 
was to say something. Just remind the listeners what, what, what you said at the time, because it, it, was, it was to do uh, with there, the... There was pressures being exerted on those uh, who had declared publicly or were believed to be in favour of a confidence vote uh, in the then Prime in Minister, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. And the way that it appeared to me to be organised suggested uh, that that kind of uh, bullying behaviour, which I... Um, I don't really have much time for. No, you went to the police about it. Well, they asked to, they asked to see me about it, but just a, a slight minor yes. uh, change of no, emphasis there. And they asked to see you, and you saw them, and nothing nothing came from it. Well, nothing came of it in that, in that respect. But the behaviours that were um, displayed stopped, and those colleagues who had been, uh, you know, had various unsavoury things threatened. Uh, they, 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 they they I know I, I won't do because it, it will betray their confidence. I thought the whole point of me doing it in the way that I did was to protect protect them from any uh, more anxiety than that which they were already feeling. Mm. Do you think that your your leaving may be a wake up call for that kind of behaviour going forward in in, in Parliament? Well, I think it's changing anyway. Um, I think there have been some behaviours that are learned behaviours that are copied, and I think that there, for a time that, that there were a number of individuals who I'm not going to dwell upon who were in positions of authority and influence who, who misused that. Mm. And um, I, I don't regret doing what I did. I might regret not thinking about its impact on me, but twas ever so. Yes, you took some time off after that, didn't you, because the pressure was quite great on you. Well, I, I just found that I'd been living on adrenaline for... Um, some months and when the summer recess came it was as if as if the, the floor uh, was taken away from under me and I, I fell into a a depressive state mm. coupled with anxiety which I felt it was better to be open and honest about so that people well first of all people would know the reason and uh, that was something that actually came as a great relief to me uh, in being able to be open and honest about it and I found it quite striking last week. I was at a, a primary school in my constituency on a visit, and there was a pupil in year six, and they said to me how pleased they were that I'd said something about uh, living with anxiety because they, they were uh, living with it as well. And I thought that was a, a deeply touching thing for a, a school child to say that to me. But, yeah, it, you know, politics is it's, uh, cut and thrust, rough and tumble. It's not really set up and designed for shrinking violets, of which I wouldn't describe myself you are as, not one, as, as one of those. But you're also, you're human. Oh, very human. And um, certainly far from perfect. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, but, 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 but you, you find me a, a, a perfect person involved in politics. I, I don't think there are any. No. Do you regret entering Parliament in 2015? Um, no. I, I, I joke about, you know, sort of being presumably on work experience and then they never let me leave um but i yeah i was 27 when i became an mp oddly enough i wasn't the youngest in that in that intake i was only the fourth youngest so yes. i didn't even get that uh, accolade i think parliament needs a mix of ages and experience and backgrounds and everything else clearly it, it, it might Sometimes it's better to, you know, make your way in the world first and then, then, then come to it in later life. But I, I think it is healthy for our democracy to have... Um, all generations. All then. generations. And it's better for our policymaking. What advice would you give to that 10-year-old William Ragg now who wanted to be an MP 
well, two decades ago. Well, what a therapy session this is if I was to uh, look at my inner child at 10 years old and say to him, uh, I'd probably say to him, you know, stick at it, keep going. There will be times that you wonder what on earth you're, you're doing. With, with, there's no with, real training for it, is there? There's no training whatsoever. There's no training, there's no job descriptions, no contract. But you, you tell me, any, you know, so it's a way of life. Yes. Uh, it's a way of life. You're, you're simply signing up to become something, and that's very important. Those two letters after your name, they, are, they, they sort of make you into something else. And, and the trick is being able to separate yourself from that, which arguably, although I may be completely wrong, but arguably in deciding I'm not going to seek re-election, I am very, very gently putting that uh, to one side Yes, uh, in, a, in an extremely healthy way. Yes. Will others follow you? I, mean, I think a dozen or so Conservative MPs have said they're standing down. Now, 40 or 50 quit in 1992. What people point out to me is, is the age is there are younger people leading politics now, which is surprising. But do you forecast more? Well, I think actually, I don't know, what's the average length of tenure for a member of parliament? I think it's about seven years. And, you know, at the next election, I would have done nine years or so. Yes. Uh, I think what's a, what the remarkable, and I mean that in the old sense of the word, that people can remark upon, is that, uh, you know, some of us started so young. Yes. And it leaves us in a very advantageous position to pursue other things, you know, but you, you yes. know, I don't want to, you know, whet people's appetite, but you never know what's going to happen in 10, 15 years' time, do you? You could be back. Who knows? But you think there might be dozens more could go? I mean, is there a number you think? I, I have th- others I, said to you, thank goodness you've. Uh, you've a, cu- a couple have done, um, and, and a number of have, have announced their intentions. I think some more will. But it has to be a personal decision as a personal choice for that, that yep. member of parliament. And they'll make the choice for all kinds of different reasons. The thing that I would hope is that they can do it from a positive perspective for themselves and, and not have any regrets of giving the public service that they will have all done yes. uh, in however short or long their tenure as a member of parliament. And what's next for you? I mean, you, you were a teacher before mm-hmm. you entered Parliament at 27. You may have think this is completely reckless, but I do not know <laughs> what is next. You know, I would be a concert pianist, but I don't play the piano. Um, so beyond that, I, I don't rule too many things out. But as I say, you know, well. I, we wait to see who might look favourably upon an institutionalised and de-skilled former member of de-skilled Parliament. De-skilled is, is a harsh term. I think you're terribly skilled at what you do. I think you've been a terrific backbench MP, an independently minded parliamentarian, and for that you deserve immense credit. William Rag, thank you for joining us, and we'll keep watching what you do. And perhaps come back on this podcast when I've gone even greyer in ten years' time, and we'll find out what you got up to. Well, there's plenty of time left. Uh, yes. Eighteen months to two years, so you never That's know. There might, be so, there might be something interested in, in the meantime. But thank you again for the opportunity. Great to have you on. Thank you, William Rag. There, coming up after the break, Tim Farron the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, on why it's right to be proud of being a Christian in modern-day politics. Right after this. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. 
I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, Tim Farron was the leader of the Liberal Democrats until 2017. He led the party through that election and then quit, saying that he found that his personal faith didn't mix with being a leader of a major political party. This week, he's got a book out saying that politics and being a Christian can mix. He joins me now on Jobless Politics down the line from his office in Parliament Tim Farron, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Chris, I'm uh, honoured to be here. Thank you for having me. You've got a book out this week called A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should should Get Involved in Politics. Mm. Should Get Involved in Politics. Now, let's take you back to 2017 when you resigned as Lib Dem leader. And you said then that you felt remaining faithful to Christ was incompatible with leading a party. Why the U-turn? Not really a U-turn, more I had come to the conclusion that for me that was the case. And the case is basically because towards the end of my time as leader, particularly during that snap general election, a side story was me being asked lots of questions, difficult stuff about the Bible and what it taught about personal morality, because it, I guess people thought it was interesting that a person who's a liberal believes in the Bible is as an orthodox Christian. And so I think I got myself into a situation, probably through my own lack of wisdom, I'm honest with you, where, and I concluded this during the campaign, but kept it to myself, that I don't, I I was either going to have to be a terrible leader and have to bat away this stuff constantly, or a terrible Christian by pretending that I didn't care about it. Well, the issue was sex between two men. That was the issue. And you felt the Bible says you can't do it, but as a, as a leader of a liberal, liberal Democrats, you have well, to be I mean, the answer is, if, you, if you're a Christian and if you're a liberal, you fundamentally believe in equality, that all people are made in the image of God. As a Christian, I believe that. And so we don't just believe in equality accidentally, biologically. We believe it at an enormously lofty level. You know, if you think about it, the most awesome thing we've seen through this James Webb telescope in the last few weeks, the most amazing cosmic structure you have seen, isn't as significant or as important as you are, Chris, or any one of us, um, because we're made in the image of God and we have ultimate dignity. So we believe in complete and utter equality, but also the Bible does say really difficult things about every bit of our life, not just sex, money, time, everything. But the tricky thing is you can't have those conversations when you've got 30 seconds of airtime you're doing a general election. So the conclusion I reached anyway was that I would have to step, or I felt I was going to step off the podium as leader at some point after that general election because I just thought being a terrible Christian or being a terrible leader, if they're the only choices I've got, that's a rubbish choice. I'll choose the third one, i.e., you know, stepping back, uh, which I don't regret in any way, shape, or form. But I also really have written this book, to be honest with you, not for people who are already involved in politics who are Christians, but for the 90 plus percent of people who are Christians and churchgoers in our country and and beyond, who I think my experiences are often disconnected from politics because they either think, you know, against the backdrop of eternity, it's all very trivial, 
or they think that it is, as the book is called, a mucky business, and therefore they don't want to soil themselves for being involved with it, that we're at the compromises that are involved with it. And then potentially we also have the problem, and I do find it anecdotally, that some Christians, because of a suspicion of the culture that we're in, will therefore be um, suspicious of the mediators of that culture, people like you, Chris, and therefore end up being susceptible to fake news. And so I want Christians to care about politics, not to panic about it, and to value truth, not just the truth, but truth in general, and make sure that when they form opinions, they form those opinions based on evidence. Does faith matter in politics? Um, David Cameron used to liken liken his faith to Magic FM's reception in in the Chilterns, i.e. patchy. (laughs) Alistair Campbell said that Tony Blair, who did go to church, was Catholic, was not Mm. meant to do God when in in office. Why is there this this kind of crouch amongst people who are Christians in, in leadership roles in this country? Everybody has faith. And it affects their worldview, whether they think it or not. If you are an absolute, I don't think most people are atheists. I think the single big, despite what the census says this week, the single biggest chunk of people in the country will define themselves as Christians, followed by various other religions, atheists, agnostics, lots of with no religion. But if you're an atheist, that will affect your worldview. Because the fact that you don't believe in God, you don't believe there's an afterlife, you don't believe that you will be held to account for anything, and they're all legitimate beliefs, by the way, but you are having faith in there not being a God. You are trusting that there won't, there isn't a God, and that will absolutely have an impact, you might say positively, but that will have an impact on your worldview. So I guess the the challenge I would make on the conversation about whether faith is relevant or acceptable in the public square if everybody has faith and i argue that they do because everybody's trusting in something then that's the third reading just gone chris really sorry but i should only give one vote i'm gonna we'll leave the line open okay i'll leave the line open thank you cheers tim tim you're back how did you vote the right way i hope yeah, but always the right way <laughs> <laughs> we were just discussing there weren't we about why previous leaders haven't haven't gone there on their faith but do you think that is the wrong approach do you think people want to hear that someone has a faith and is doing what they're doing for the right reasons well you've been sort of simplistic about it you could say look over the other side of the pond and see i'll have to check because of the uh, recent elections but before the elections in america just the other week only one member of congress was publicly known as an atheist only the one. And so in the States, there's this sense that you have to kind of concoct a faith, even if you haven't got one, to be taken seriously. And maybe the thinking is in the UK, it's the other way around. You've got to kind of keep it hidden and all the rest of it. I'm not sure I actually think that so much now. I think what we have, what we need to do is have a bit of a conversation, a grown-up one, about what is faith and what is its place. And I'd simply say, I said earlier on, that atheism um, is a faith. You are trusting in there not being a god, trusting in something or the absence of something that affects your worldview. And and so if you're a Marxist, or you, you buy everything that Milton Friedman wrote about monetarism in the free market, or Adam Smith, or anybody for that matter, we all, 100% of us have a worldview. And so the notion that people with an established religious faith, let's say that, have to leave their worldview at the door, and everybody else is allowed in, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It doesn't make any intellectual sense at all. Well, why do MP- MPs have prayers each day and when they have those prayers that they face the wall don't they in the chamber yeah so i mean honestly so you i know you know this works but just so you for, for, for listeners uh, the, the day does start with prayers 
And they're good prayers. They're good, solid Church of England prayers. I'm happy to pray them out loud myself. And most of it, you ch- I don't know whether it's so we're not looking at each other whilst we're praying. I don't know what the reason is. But of course, the reality is that if, particularly on a busy day, like Prime Minister's Questions Day on a Wednesday, if you turn up on time, put your prayer card in the back of your seat, and then turn up to prayers itself a couple of hours later, that seat is then yours for the rest of the day. So the reality is that prayers in Parliament are the Westminster equivalent of the Germans putting the beach towels on the sun lounges. <laughs> and, and so why do we do it? I mean, this is all part of the fact that we have an established Church of England and um, and Christianity is sort of the official religion of the country still, even though I think in practice it has been for decades. Is there a kind of cringe amongst our institutions about the church that you worry about, that, that you have Winterval this time of year rather than Christmas and this kind of thing? Does it bother you or, or not? I mean, in one sense, it doesn't. I mean, first of all, I wasn't brought up as a Christian, particularly. I made a, a choice at 18 on the basis of what I thought was the evidence that I would become a Christian and put my trust in Jesus. I also don't think that the job of Christians is to kind of, you know, colonise the country. And so the fact that you know, you lose some of these symbols and traditions. It might be a little bit sad, but I don't think it's all that important. Certainly for me, uh, I will, it's Christmas. I will never spell Christmas with an X, uh, no matter how much of a rush I'm in. And, and you know, it's silly to call it Winterfell. I think people who are not Christians mostly respect the traditions. And I think that's that's a good thing. And just coming on to that, finally, on the census this week, Tim Farron, it showed that for the first time, uh, less than half the population... 46.2%, although 27.5 million people describe themselves as Christian in 2021. That's a big fall compared to 59% or 33.3 million in 2011. Do you find that depressing? Well, not culturally, because uh, in one sense that that's, that's not a, a particular problem for me, and not in the sense that I think Christianity is dying out, because it obviously isn't. Uh, the explosion of the church in China, in Africa, South America the rest of East Asia and so on, tells you that Christianity is is growing hugely and it is the, the faith of the poor and the oppressed. The, the median Christian on planet Earth is black, female and under 20. So the thought that Christianity is dying out, it certainly isn't. Having said that, if I believe that people are only going to find eternal life, eternal meaning through a relationship with Jesus Christ and there's fewer of them, that is tragic for each of those people. But I'm not convinced that the numbers that were reported in previous censuses actually reflected the number of people who were actively really Christian. They were, you know, if you'd asked me at 16, Tim, are you a Christian? And I'd probably say yes, just because it was the 80s. And, well, I'm British, yes, I suppose I am. And I think that we're, mine was a generation that didn't go to church mostly. Mostly, mostly my parents' generation too, but my grandparents' generation did. And so people of my age and maybe people from over 40, shall we say, and I'm over 50 now, will at least have sung hymns at school, will be familiar with some Bible stories. And people who are under 40, there's a total disconnect from all that kind of thing. So there's no knee-jerk reason for them to describe themselves as Christians. So I don't actually think, or all we're really seeing is a people offering a cultural description, not a, not a faith one. Do you think the response from the church should be do more politics? Well, I certainly when you think see, when you see the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, speaking out on the yeah. small boats crisis, is that that kind of thing? Well, I think it, I, I certainly think that uh, that Christians of all kinds should speak truth to power. I think it's interesting that when Justin Welby, of course, gave his Easter address, his Good Friday address last year, all the coverage was on the thirty seconds he'd spoken about Rwanda. 
And I kind of thought, well, you know, I agree with you, but maybe you shouldn't have said something so political. And then I actually looked at his sermon because I, you know, like everybody else, I just looked at the coverage of it. And he mentioned the resurrection more than 10 times. That's what his focus was. But he made an, a, a comment on the application of faith about how we love our neighbour and who our neighbour is and used Rwanda as an example. That's, of course, the policy to fly um, migrants to Rwanda to, put, to try and break the business model of the... Well, but I'm, my, my view is exactly but the, the opposite. But that, I guess that's a central point, Dave. That you, Most of the meddle in politics. Well, your work yeah, yeah. meddle. Well, your, work, your work so, meddle. I mean, so, we, well, so we have an established Church of England. I don't think we should is my personal view. You know, I think disestablishment of the Church of England is not something I call for because I want Christianity tipexed tip out. I just think that it's not right to have a, a, a state religion. It's not the job of the state. I also think it kind of pollutes the church. It stops them being as forceful as they might be. Well, this, this, this conversation will be relevant going to the coronation, won't it, in May? And we saw, and that's why we had this coming together around the Queen's funeral, didn't we, in September? We did, yeah. And I will see. And, I, you know, so part of me thinks I like the fact that the Church of England's presence in every community is really important. But I do think they are compromised by the fact that they're part of the furniture of the state. Well, Tim Farron, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, your new book, A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should Get Involved in Politics, is out now. And we'll put a link to how to buy that in the show notes to this episode. Tim, thanks for joining us in between votes in the House of Commons. Yeah, thank you for being very, very tolerant and patient with me. It's lovely to see you again. Great to have you on. All the best to you. Thank you. Yes, Chris, God bless. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for this week, listeners, from a rather noisy Red Lion pub, getting ready for Christmas, and why not? Thank you to my guests this week, Simon Clark, MP, William Bragg, MP, and of course, Tim Farron, MP. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and to my colleague, Meghna Nanu, and a special shout-out to Olive's mum. But most importantly of all, thank you to you all for listening. I really appreciate it. For more Westminster Insights, do check out my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode. I want to have a peep at my Peterborough Diary column out on Friday evenings at 7pm online and in Saturday's edition of The Daily Telegraph. But more important than my musings are yours. Dear listeners, please do share your thoughts on what our guests have had to say. Please email me, telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me. We're at Choppers Podcast. And remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. It's a great read and you won't regret it. Until next time though, from the Red Lion Pub, cheerio! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.